today hear his voice, concludes Psalm 95, verse 7. I'm going to invite you to use your sanctified imagination, to try to envision, if you can, that there was a time in my life when I employed selective hearing. I can remember hearing my parents say to me with some uh, amplified zeal and passion, we told you yesterday to not sit in front of the TV eating Doritos, but instead to mow the lawn and wash the cars. And if you don't wash the cars and mow the lawn, you're going to get spanked and grounded. And of course, what did I hear? I heard, sit in front of the TV, eat Doritos, or you'll get spanked and grounded. And so I did precisely that. And so in one sense, I was obedient. Not exactly. Those of you with parents, those of you who are parents, you understand how this goes. Fortunately, praise be to God, that sort of selective hearing was completely purged from my person by the time I was married. <laughs> and then I grew a little bit older, and I got to enter into the season in which my own parents began to evidence and manifest some selective hearing. My dad went through a series and a season of health issues, and he was told at one point, hey, with all that's going on with you, and because of a whole series of decades of pretty poor lifestyle choices, we're going to change your diet. There will be absolutely no ice cream for you, which was kind of like telling a fish, there will be no water for you. And so all my dad heard for the last several years of his life was ice cream. The prohibition became the thing that only thing that he could hear, just ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. He was hearing, but not hearing. Just like as a child, I was hearing, but not hearing. Well, perhaps you've been the witness to some argument, some conflict of conversation that was occurring, and you watch, and he said, there is something happening here. Both of these people have the exact same amount of information, and yet they're not seeing it the same way. They're not hearing it the same way. It's not a, it's not a, a lack of information or accuracy of fact, they're just hearing it differently. There is a selective hearing that they are hearing, but not hearing. And it's kind of maddening when you observe that. And it's also hopefully convicting that you yourself have been a part of that same kind of conversation, of confrontation, and of conflict. And so that sets up the great question from one of my favorite Christmas carols. Do you hear what I hear? How do you hear? What is it exactly that you hear? Now, Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that the secret things belong to our God. There's a lot of things that God tells us, and there are a lot of things that God does not tell us. The secret things belong to God. I don't know how God did what he did at creation. He said, let there be, and there was. How did that happen exactly? I don't know. It's a secret thing. But the revealed things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, belong to us and our children forever. There is a great amount of revelation, information, and knowledge and wisdom that God has given us. And they may be mysterious at first glance, but they are to be seen. They are to be heard. They are to be understood by those that will see and hear. And so that sets up our big idea for this morning. And for our passage, it goes like this. The kingdom of God is an open mystery. Let me just go ahead and resolve any tension you've always kind of carried with what's the deal with the kingdom and why does Jesus talk like he does? The kingdom of God is an open mystery. Now, we're going to be in the gospel of Mark. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. As you're turning to Mark chapter 4, let's be reminded as we've been walking through Mark's gospel this calendar year, sort of our, our theme, our thread, our refrain that I want us to all carry with us is the more we examine the object of our faith, that's Jesus, the more our faith grows. It's not about us trying harder to believe more. I, I don't know how you do that. What I can exhort you and I can implore you and urge you to do is to examine the object of our faith, namely this Jesus, and that will grow our faith. Now, last week, we looked at all of chapter three, and we said that the king has come, his kingdom is here, and that's absolutely the case. And Mark wants his readers in Rome to understand that, that this king has truly come, and he's a king unlike any other king. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. That's important. That's absolutely the case. But it's important for us to understand how that truth fits into our Bible. Jesus came into the land of Israel, Palestine, offering the kingdom. 
But the gospel writers are not offering you and me the kingdom. The gospel writers are using the language of the kingdom that Jesus offered to give us the gospel. It's a really, really big deal. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. These guys are referencing, all of them are saying, Jesus came offering the kingdom and Israel rejected it. And so now it's gone global. Now it's gone viral. Now it's gone all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, all clans, all sorts of languages. He offered it to them and they said no. And so it's come to us. And so the gospel writers are offering us the gospel by depicting and demonstrating the offer of the kingdom that Jesus gave. So this whole thing of the kingdom, what is the deal with the kingdom? The kingdom includes the church, but it is more than the church. Now, this conversation, this topic of the kingdom of God has vexed people for centuries. It's caused all kinds of debates, all kinds of sessions and seasons in which people are hearing, not hearing, seeing, not seeing. So what's the deal with the kingdom of God? Let me just try to summarize it and and put it out there to you like this. There are two instances and we get a perfect demonstration and depiction of the kingdom of God. Interestingly, Those two places are the first two chapters of our Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two chapters of our Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. In both of those bookend chapters, what we see is God and man perfectly in harmony and fellowship, in a paradise where there is no sin, where God reigns, where his will is accomplished perfectly, and there is no rebellion. Even the created order responds. You want to see the kingdom of God? Genesis 1 and 2. You want to see the kingdom of God? Revelation 21 and 22. And right in the middle, right in the dead center, comes this Jesus. And he goes, oh, the kingdom that was, the kingdom that will be, I've brought it, and it's me. Oh, it's not what you expected. It's not what you wanted, but it's actually come And it's me. We've talked about this before where Jesus grabs the border and the boundary of the coming kingdom age and he stretches it back into this present age. That's the book of Titus. We are to live accordingly because we're from the future. That's the kingdom of God already and not yet. Now, when Jesus comes and offers the kingdom to his countrymen, his brothers nationally and ethnically, and it is rejected. Mark's sitting in Rome, writing to these Roman people saying, you guys, the true emperor, the true Caesar, the true king of kings, the Lord of lords, he's come and he's the one that makes life work. Now, let me give you, before we even go to Mark chapter four, keep your finger there and if you'd like, look at Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28 is sort of this wonderful picture of how the church has burst forth on a global scale. We get to the very end of the book of Acts, and not surprisingly, we find the Apostle Paul where? In Rome. Luke even says, at last, finally, we come to Rome. And Paul has this conversation in Rome where Mark was writing his gospel, to whom Mark is writing his gospel. He's referring, I think, back in some part to what Paul has already said when he was in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. Let me just read very quickly, beginning in verse 23. When they had appointed it, that's the Jewish leaders for him, Paul, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. That's the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The kingdom was in Genesis 1 and 2. We lost it. The kingdom will come again, Revelation 21 and 22. It's not here yet, but it's a person and he's begun it. And he tried to convince them from scripture because that's what we do. We try to convince people about Jesus from God's word. Verse 24 is super instructive. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Same words, same message, same tone, same body language. It was the hearers that were different. That's instructive. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Oh, here was the straw that stirred the drink. Here was the same straw that also happened to break a camel's back. Lesson, be very aware of straws. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. 
Then he goes on and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul quotes from that. And Mark is saying, that thing that happened in Rome where you are, maybe some of you were even there, is exactly what Jesus said would happen to his disciples. Acts 28 is a precap, we might even say, of what's going to be revealed to us in Mark chapter 4. Why am I nerding out on this so much? To give us this interpretive key. So that, as a result of hearing the proclamation of Mark chapter 4, you and I, we will be numbered among those who are seeing and seeing, hearing and hearing not numbered among those who hear this and go, yeah, I just, I don't get it. No, thanks, I'm good. My prayer in preparation this whole week is that all of us would see and see and hear and hear. And so with all of that, let me remind you the kingdom of God is an open mystery. It is a mystery, make no mistake, but be equally confident it has been opened. So Mark chapter four, beginning in verse one. Mark chapter four. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. Remember, he's, he's up on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, due north on the shore of this freshwater lake, the Galilee. The waters of the Jordan come down from the snow melt of Mount Hermon. The blessing, the bounty, the purity of God comes down before it begins to become polluted all the way down to the salt sea. Jesus is on the northern edge, demonstrating the, the provision, the, the giving of God's good blessing. He's up there by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Get the setting. Last week, I invited you to come with me. Don't just be here in a brown chair in East Texas in the 21st century. Come with me to the land. In fact, let me be more specific. Like for seriouses and for reals, come with me. Lord willing, we're gonna take a study tour to Jordan and Israel this fall in October. You can find out more about that in your bulletin. I would love for you to actually bodily, physically come with me as we study and stand in the land. But in this case, I want you to envision it. I want you to see and see and hear and hear. Jesus is being crushed by all these people. Now, if you've got a handy-dandy ESV like I do, it might have a, a, a title over this passage. It says, The Parable of the Sower. And that's fine. That's cute. Don't love that because a whole lot more is going to be said about the soil than the sower. And the fact that the ESV and other translations put that title there sometimes confuse people to misunderstand what this teaching is doing. Verse 2, And he was teaching them think, many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them. Now he's teaching them in parables. Why parables? We got to talk about parables for just a moment. Parable comes from a Greek word. It means to throw alongside, to, to use a comparative illustration to communicate a truth. It's taking what's known in this realm and using it to explain that which is unknown from an unknown realm. It's an extended story or an event. It answers a question or it solves a problem. It is not allegory. A lot of times parables get interpreted allegorically, which means we take every single element and we assign arbitrarily a meaning. Like Augustine took the, the story of the Good Samaritan. He was like, well, clearly the two coins is the son and the spirit. The donkey represents the church. And like, what? Like, no, 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 that's allegory. We're not into that at all. A parable actually has a point and a purpose and it's usually explained at some level or another. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Because after this, and all the gospels, after he begins to speak in parables, signs and wonders begin to decrease because he's beginning to divide hearts, those who are seeing, those who are hearing. And we're gonna see how important this is. It is to reveal truth to some, it is to hide truth from others. Those who are in the kingdom, they will get it and they will grow. Those who are outside will not. Remember, they are up in Capernaum. Though it's not Jerusalem in terms of learning and scholarship, it's pretty close. It is as uh, established academically and from a scholarship standpoint as you could be other than Jerusalem. They held the line academically into orthodoxy in the northern part of Palestine that was happening in Capernaum. Remember, Jesus already healed a bunch of people. He had experienced all sorts of pressing crowds. He had cast out demons. He had been accused of being possessed by a demon. And he had refuted those Jewish legislators who came down from Jerusalem. And he had sat around with all these people, this crush of humanity, probably Jew and Gentile alike. And he said, this is now my family. 
Those who are with me, who are on the inside, are with me. The king has come. His kingdom is here. Now, how will that be received? And into that, Jesus gives a parable. Because the hearers in Rome, the hearers in East Texas in 2022, are going to go, how are people going to receive that massive announcement that the king has come, his kingdom is here? How do people respond to that? How do people react to that? How do people receive that? Jesus is going to proactively address that very question. It says in verse 3, listen, behold. Now, I love those two words. I love those two words. You can always tell what kind of a learner a person is, a person is by how they address you. When they want you to understand something, some people will say, look here, look here, look at it, look at it, look at it. You can tell they are a visual learner themselves. And then there are people who say, listen, listen, don't you, don't you get it? Listen. That person is an auditory learner. Jesus is addressing both. It's brilliant. It's almost like the creator knows the created and he wants to make sure that all people, whether auditory or visual, are being addressed. Listen, behold, hear it, see it. Verse three, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Now listen, let me be very quick on this. I'm not going to unpack and exegete every one of these types of soils because Jesus himself will do that in a matter of paragraphs. So sit tight, we'll get there. I suspect that virtually everybody in the hearing of my voice, whether on one of these three floors or watching remotely, has probably heard this text or the one in Matthew 13 or in Luke chapter 8. You've probably heard the parable of the soils before. Let me ask you to set that aside for a moment and let's let the risen word interpret the written word. So let's go with this. Jesus uses imagery that they would have understood an agrarian reference to someone who just broadcasts seed far and wide. They knew that. Jesus wasn't talking about, it's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a guy with an iPhone 13 Pro with that new portrait feature. It's really dope. They'd <laughs> be like, wait, what? And maybe you're sitting there going, why doesn't Jesus just speak like in my language? Because this was 2,000 years ago in a very different context, space, and time. We have to understand that, but it was very crystal clear. I hear people all the time in the West, in the 21st century, go, why doesn't Jesus just say it plainly? Well, he was to those people then and there. The work is on us to interpret and to understand. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up, increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now, the best results you could hope to get in an agrarian context, if you sowed your seed, the best you could hope for in a bumper crop was 10 to 1. You get tenfold, you're crushing it. Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how this response to the king and his kingdom is going to be. Some of it's not going to be received at all for various reasons, but there's going to be some and it will produce, not tenfold. No, 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 no. 30, 60, 100 fold. Whoa. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's going on with all that? Now we hear this parable and in our context, in our setting, we want to ask the question, okay, 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 which one of those soils was saved? Or which one of those soils was saved and lost it? Wrong question. It's not at all what Jesus is doing. Jesus is offering the kingdom to a group of unregenerate Jews in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Mark is using this to give us the gospel. Jesus is not trying to say which soil is saved. It is a gross misappropriation, misapplication of this passage. So what does it mean? Well, Jesus is going to explain it to us here in just a moment. Verse 10, and when he was alone, so a little scene change, Jesus says all this and the disciples are like, yeah, that's right, rocks and thorns and path. And that's right, Jesus, you get them, you tell them, sis, boom, ba. And then they go off and they're alone with Jesus. And they're like, yo, rabbi, What? What, what, what's happening? We don't understand. Like, what is happening? When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret. No! Bad translation. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. It's a mystery. A secret is a thing that is 
kept from you by another person that you have to go and figure out and they hold the power over you until you do. I've got a secret and if you don't know, I'm not gonna tell you. I hated that friend. You know who you are. Grace and mercy upon your person. That's a secret where you've got to go figure it out. That's the, the hidden door. And all that. That's not the word. The word in Greek is a mysterion, where we get our word for mystery. That is a very technical, intentional term. It means something veiled by God for a time, revealed by God at a time. This is Paul's whole point in the book of Ephesians. The mystery of the church. Oh, it was there. We just couldn't see it. God hadn't revealed it to us. B.B. Warfield, an old scholar, used to say, the mystery of the church was in the Old Testament. It was like a room fully furnished, but dimly lit. We couldn't quite see all the pieces. We couldn't make out the shapes and the sizes. Mark is saying that Jesus was saying, listen, the, 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 the mystery has been revealed to you because the kingdom of God is an open mystery. It's been revealed to you. He says in verse 11, to you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables. Now, why is Jesus talking in parables? Well, verse 12, he tells us, so that, ooh, when you see your Bible, Old or New Testament, say so that, pay attention. It's giving you the purpose. It's answering the question, why? Why, Jesus? Why parables? Glad you asked. Verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Is Jesus saying he doesn't want people to be forgiven? No, 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 of course not. This is the living word referencing the written word. Just like Paul in Acts 28, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10. Let me nerd out for just a moment. 700 years before Jesus is the prophet Isaiah. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up, holy, 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 enrightifying, enrightifying, enrightifying is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Who's going to go and talk about this? And Isaiah goes, yeah, here I am, send me. And God says, go get him, tiger. Nobody's going to listen because I have pronounced judgment on them already. Now, what we find out in our New Testament and the Gospels, the God that is speaking to Isaiah John 12, 41 tells us that was Jesus. It was actually Jesus around whom the seraphim were flying going, he is in righteifying, he is in righteifying, he is in righteifying. Go and tell them about my justice, my mercy, my holiness. But they're not gonna listen. And that God steps off of his throne into flesh, comes into this mess, hot dumpster fire of a context, and he's preaching his own coming kingdom in such a way that they will not fully hear. He has become this written word, this personification, this manifestation of the written word. We already saw it in Acts 28. Jesus is doing this. This is a pronounced judgment. Those who reject the kingdom are rejecting me, which means they are rejecting God. At the end of the book of Matthew, we see the Jews, the leaders, the officials, those in charge with responsibility and authority stand before Pilate and they say, we will not have this man as our king. His blood be on our heads and that of our children. And there, the offer of the kingdom concludes. So all the gospel writers want us to understand, he offered it to them freely if they would have just sought, but they don't. And so it goes now global to the Gentiles, people like you and me. It's a very very good news. It's an awesome announcement. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Do you not get this? How then will you understand all the parables? Ooh, this is an interpretive key. This one helps us to understand everything else that Jesus is going to teach in parable. It helps us to understand, to see, to hear. How do we hear? How do we understand? It's at this point that you and I, the hearers of God's word, should begin to ask the question introspectively, how do I hear God's word? How do I receive and understand God's word? It's a great question. And if you are incapable of asking that question, repent. While today is still called today, as I'm looking at some of your faces and have been praying all this week, God, if there's anyone who refuses to hear, would you do what you alone can do? 
Would you help them to hear? Would you help them to see, perhaps in a new and fresh way, who you are, what you have done, who you have declared us to be? And now Jesus explains some things with parables. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Is he talking about Jesus? Yes, we're in a church. And so if you ask, who is that? You have to say Jesus. Yes, he's talking about Jesus in that particular context. But it's also anybody that broadcasts, that declares, that proclaims the word of God. Anybody, I am sowing the word. When you have a conversation with your spouse or your child or your parent or your neighbor or your enemy about the word of God, you are the sower of the seed. It is broadcast universally and rather indiscriminately. And dare I even say, inefficiently and in a profligate, wasteful sense. I heard people all the time, I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. I'm not casting pearls before swine. Easy there, tiger. Easy. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I'm not trying to spook you. I'm not trying to go full Halloween on you. Do you have any idea that there is a volitional intelligent attempt to keep you and me from hearing the truth of God. You must understand, this is Paul in Ephesians 6, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the prince of the power of the air that will do anything and everything at any opportunity to keep you and me from seeing, from hearing, because if we see and if we hear, then we are changed and he has lost. There is seed that goes out and we just, for some reason, we can't hear, there's distractions, there's, there's ambivalence, there's all these different things. And it just, it doesn't even, it's like it lands on this hardwood floor. It's, and, and by the way, that's the toil of the preacher. We know that a lot of what we say just lands on hardwood. And that's okay. God's gonna do what God's gonna do. Watch. Verse again, 15. And those are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown to them. And they are... Uh, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Yes, that sounds good. It scratches my itch. It numbs my pain. And they have no root. Oh, there's no depth whatsoever in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, of the word, sorry, immediately they fall away. It's not saying they lose their salvation. It's saying that there was never any depth to root them. It sounded good. They were seeing, but not really seeing. They were hearing, but not really hearing. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. Ah, apparently this soil is good enough to at least support a bunch of thorns. And nothing grows faster than a weed. Amen? Those of you who spent any time outside, you cut your grass, you turn around, and there's weeds already. Like how in the world? This is decent enough soil. But there's so much distraction, so much vying for our attention and our affection. When the thorns of life come, and make no mistake, the thorns of life come, and they take away the things that we prize most, then we begin to realize, oh, I was confused. I was mixing up God and his goodies. The thing that I cherished most was taken from me, and I realized I was actually worshiping that thing and not the one that gave it to me. And the soil of my heart gets increasingly thorny because I'm not hearing, I'm not actually seeing. Verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, of material blessing and security and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. There is production. Jesus is saying, listen, you wanted me to bring in the Daniel 2 smiting stone that I would obliterate all the kingdoms of the world. I would put the Romans necks under my boot. No, 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 no. That's, that's another time. What I've come to do is ask you, how do you hear this word that the king has come and his kingdom is here? What are the obstacles in the soil of your heart? Now, when I say your heart, I hope you all know and understand that in both Testaments, I don't mean the cardiological blood pump that moves circulating things through your body. I mean the seat of your will, of your soul, of your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your understanding. How do you hear? How do you see? What do you understand? The kingdom is being proclaimed. 
But do you have other expectations like the original recipients of the offer of the kingdom had? Well, Jesus continues. He's going to go into this quick little triplicate, this very rapid burst triplicate of explanation further about this open mystery. The kingdom of God is an open mystery. Just very quickly, Mark arranges these little sayings, and it seems like they're just like one sentence at a time. They're super fast. And Jesus is going, yeah, are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you seeing? Are you wanting to understand? Listen to what he says. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Obvious answer, no. But it's a lamp. If you ever walk into a room, you go, whoa, lamp. Ah, the lamp. Turn it. That's probably not a lamp. You might be on the earth sun. <laughs> That's what they wanted. They wanted a solar explosion. They wanted a flare, a blast. Jesus goes, no. And by the way, I don't even mean like a lamp that you click. I mean like an oil lamp. You know what a lamp does? This is super not exciting. It just shines. Doesn't say much. Really bad at jokes. Boring at cocktail parties. It just sits there and it just shines. It's not to be hidden. And then the interpretive keys in verse 22. Now stick with me for verse 22. This is massive. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nothing is hidden except to be made known. Nothing is discovered. Nothing is obscured except to be made clear. What? This is how Jesus is telling us something very, very important. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret or mysterious except to come to light. Now that's instructive. Think of Easter, those of you who remember Resurrection Sunday when you used to do this for your kids. You would go and hide Easter eggs. Why? so that those little rugrats would never find anything. No, of course not. Like, oh yeah, I buried them in Tulsa. Well, no, we live in Tyler. They're hidden, all right. Go get them, tiger. No, if you're a decent parent at all, you hide them like, there they are. I think that might be an egg in a house shoe. And you want them to be found. This is what Jesus is saying. Yes, it is obscured, but all you gotta do is look. <laughs> all you gotta do is look. I will not look for those eggs, Father. You can hit me in the face with that egg. Uh, you, I won't look for that egg. Then you miss the peeps. Everybody loves, nobody likes peeps, actually. I don't know where those come from. I think they're ground up yoga mats, as all those things actually are. But you have to actually go and find the thing that is actually very easy to find if you'll just look. In other words, hear this. Seeking is the first step in seeing. I will not. God has to show up in my bathroom mirror and tell me that, well, if he does that, that's probably not God and you should move. <laughs> seeking is the first step in seeing because the kingdom of God is an open mystery. He continues on. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you see that? He's telling him, are you hearing? Are, 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 you, are you hearing? Are you, are you listening? Are you seeing? Do you, do you want to? Because if you don't, repent. I will show you. I will, show, I will even give you the want to want to. Just rethink your thinking. He continues. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Wait a second. What? Jesus gives us two little quick pops right there. As he's saying that, that, that how I evaluate myself is how I evaluate others and how I evaluate others is how I... Kind of, yes. There's an old kingdom that says you esteem everybody else according to what you have and don't have. That's old kingdom. The new kingdom is, do you hear? Do you see? Now, if you want to evaluate everybody else according to how you evaluate them, how much do they have? How attractive are they? Where do they live? What do they drive? How do they vote? okay. Well, that's all based on merit. We can do that, but careful, I will do that with you as well because that evidence is that you don't get it. And then he says, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And we go, wait, that's not fair. That doesn't sound like gospel. Oh, but it is. He's of course not talking about material wealth, not about physical assets. He's saying, those who get it, I will give more. Those who are spiritually rich, who are wanting to hear, who are wanting to see, who are wanting to understand, I will continue to pour additional insight, additional insight, and you will be thirsty, and you will be parched for the word of God and the people of God by the spirit of God, and it'll never be enough. 
And I'll just keep giving you more and you will see more clearly and you will hear more clearly and you will understand more vividly. But to those of you who've been given insight, but your soil has become rocky or shallow or thorny, you will lose that insight. He's not talking about a loss of salvation yet, but it's a cautionary tale. How do you hear? How do you listen? Are you wanting to understand? Well, he continues on, verse 25, for to the one who has more will be given from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That insight will calcify. It will go through a sclerosis and a hardening and you will, as Romans 1 says, increasingly be turned over to yourself. And then he gives one more quick little burst of parables and he said, the kingdom of God, let, let me, how else can I describe the kingdom? I know you want me to wipe out the Romans. Shh, 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 stop that, pay attention. The kingdom's working differently. The kingdom of God is like uh, a man who should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The kingdom of God is working mysteriously. The kingdom of God, you, you sow your seed and you go to bed and things are happening you have no control over. Oh, yes, there's a responsibility to broadcast, to proclaim, to declare, but God's doing a thing with that in his own way, in his own power, in his own sovereignty, in his own creativity. In other words, we don't do ministry with objectives in mind. It's not about outcomes. We do ministry with Jesus in mind because the king has come and his kingdom is here and it is an open mystery. We're gonna throw that seed and we pray God that people hear and see and understand. But God's doing it. That's how this kingdom works. It's not like an old kingdom where Caesar comes in and he marches across the Rubicon and he slaughters people. No, 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 Jesus says, that's not what I'm about. Not at all. He sleeps and rises night and day and He's, and it sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. God has done a thing and we reap the benefits and the blessings because God has done a work. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed. Ah, this one's familiar to most of us. Which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Oh no, we're supporting Satan? No, see, this is where you can't make it an allegory. In this case, the birds are not enemies. It's just actually like, you know, the birds who get in the mustard plant? It's a small, insignificant little seed like Jesus coming into Bethlehem, vulnerable, defenseless, crying, gooey, dirty. And yet this kingdom, God works in and through him and his spirit and it grows rapidly so that it begins to support the surrounding community. That's how this kingdom works. Verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. You see there, the word interprets the word. The living word interprets the written word and the written word interprets the living word and the disciples, those on the inside, those who are with him are those who are hearing and seeing and understanding more specifically, more precisely. The disciples are those who are wanting to hear and see and understand. So what do we do with all of this? If the kingdom of God is in fact an open mystery, what do we take away? I've got one concluding implication or application for you and it goes very simply like this. Tend your soil. Tend your soil. How are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are you understanding? What are the influences that are tainting your mind? You and I don't make good soil. You, you have no capacity to make good soil, but what you can do is examine. You can examine your heart. Let me nuance it that way. Examine your heart. What are the influences? What are the distractions? What are the things that are coming at you all the time that are warping, twisting, perverting how you see, how you hear? What is the lens that you're looking at the world? What is happening that makes you interpret that conversation with your spouse that way? What is happening? What is it that is, that is making you think and feel that way. I'm saying we have to have the wisdom and the awareness so that from time to time we can step back and ask ourselves, whoa, where did that come from? That thing just came out of my mouth? 
Where did that come from? Why did that make me so angry? Ah, I've allowed thorns in my my soil. Why did that make me so afraid? Oh, I, I have allowed my soil to grow increasingly shallow and there's no root. Why did that make me so jealous? Oh, because I have allowed my soil to become so rocky. Things are crowded, and I, I, I want what they have because I think I'm entitled to more than they shouldn't have it, but I should because I'm better than them. I'm evaluating them according to how I evaluate myself and vice versa. And, uh, tend your soil. Examine your heart. Why does that make me so manipulative? Why do I feel like I have to work and I have to scheme and I have to connive? Oh, because at the end of the day, I don't really believe the gospel. Why does it make me so... You fill in the blank when you hear that statement at work, when you hear that statement in your home, in your community, in your church, on TV. Why am I reacting that way? Oh, because I'm not hearing and seeing properly because my soil has become rocky or shallow or thorny. Why is that? Are there birds? Is there shallowness? Are there rocks? Are there thorns? So, So then what do we do? With that, what is the interpretive key for this parable that Jesus says is how we understand everything else that he teaches? In view of the kingdom and the announcement of the gospel, what and how do we actively think and feel? Let me give you four quick tips as you tend your soil, as you examine your heart. These techniques to be intentional and volitional about. Number one, receive. Always be receiving the word of God. It is broadcast in various forms and formats. Receive, hear the word and the gospel again and again and again and again and again. You and I never go nor grow beyond the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It is finished. Oh, since it's finished, I have to grasp and strive for nothing. Hear and receive the gospel, rightly divided, and may that truth be falling on you consistently throughout your, in, your entire life. What else are you listening to that greatly impacts how you hear what God is saying? What are you receiving? So think on that. What am I receiving? All this social media messaging that's bombarding me. Is it polluting and corrupting my soil? Conversations and relationships that are perhaps toxic. Is that polluting my soil? Number one, receive. Number two, retain retain. Maybe you take notes. Maybe you don't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you have the desire to work these truths, to massage them deep into your heart and your soul and your mind. We hide God's word in our heart, Psalm 119.11, that we might not sin against him, that our examination of the object of our faith would increase and our faith would grow. So we receive it. We intentionally retain it. I want to remember this. I want this to matter to me in my dark moments and in my good moments. We receive, we retain, we persevere. We persevere. The worst kind of distraction is the one that you don't even know is a distraction. And we're all victim to them. Everybody knows what a paper cut on their thumb feels like. But a subtle chemical imbalance can wreak havoc on our focus, on our stamina, on our energy. Identify the pollutants in the soil of your heart and do hard things. Get off the Twitters. It's bad for you. That's not inspired. It's just true. Do hard things. Make the decision to begin the process of removing those things and commit to the Lord in thought, word, and deed to live by faith and then trust him and his spirit and his word and to be with his people. Stick it out because we're all in this together seeking to see hoping to hear under the watch care of our God so that we might understand. Receive, retain, persevere, finally produce. What are you doing? Perhaps you've heard the old adage of the 80-20 rule that in any organization, specifically a church, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work or service. That's tragic because it means that only 20% of the people are getting 80% of the joy. 20% of the people are doing those things that actually ratchet up their seeking so that they can see and hear. That means that 80% of the people are not really interested. They just don't want to go to hell when they die one day. 
It's not enough. Produce. Get involved. We have a guy named Mike Hall who loves to drink coffee downstairs. He will buy you coffee. He will tell you all the different avenues and lanes into which you can go to get engaged in the life and the ministry of this church or all of our church or even in this community on the whole. Produce, so receive, retain, persevere, and produce. The kingdom of God is an open mystery. And these intentional practices or disciplines assist us in keeping that mystery open to us because your enemy's always trying to close it. The kingdom of God is an open mystery. But I know, I get it, I get it. Listen, listen, I get it. It's Sunday and Monday's coming. This will, any of this that I've said in Mark chapter four, it'll only really impact us if our hearts are actually captured by this king. So let me show you the man, this king, this Jesus. We're still in Mark four, bear with me. Mark four. Verse 35, on that day, on the exact same day, Mark wants you to understand after all this wonderful teaching, there's only two long teaching sections in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter four, Mark chapter 13. This is the big matzo ball in the first half of the gospel of Mark and we've just tackled it. Now Mark's gonna go back to the action movie. On that same day, he's taught them all these things and they're scratching their heads as disciples often do going, wait, what? On that same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, record scratch. No, 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 no. Remember, we're in Capernaum, 1,500 people. The synagogue there is beautiful and glorious. You can go and see it today, or more specifically, in October. Did I mention that? You can see the synagogue where Jesus was teaching today. The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawgivers were very, very emphatically intentional about teaching people to stay away from idolatry and adultery and bloodshed. Those were the big three that the rabbis would say, avoid idolatry, adultery, and bloodshed. And the other side, that's the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, was the capital of adultery, idolatry, and bloodshed. It's called the Decapolis because Rome had built 10 cities there, Decapolis. They built 10 cities there. By the time Jesus is on the scene, there's actually 18 cities and they're all nasty. And Jesus goes, boys, get in the truck. We're going to the other side. And they go, what? Like the thing they feared most comes upon them. We've done so good keeping ourselves from the other side. And Jesus goes, yeah, but you know what? I was in glory with my father for all eternity. And I stepped into your hot mess of a dumpster fire. And this is gonna be a picture of what you do for the rest of your lives. Get in a boat, we're going over there. And they're going, ew, ew, ew. Jesus, I don't know what penicillin is, but we're gonna need some. Ew, ew, ew. Watch what happens. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them. And in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. Remember what we said last week in Mark chapter three, there are two kingdoms kingdom of darkness, the old kingdom. And there's a new kingdom that has dawned. I think from the other side, the old king of this age sees him coming and he whips up a storm. And you know this story. It's a bad one. It comes out of nowhere. And there's, the text talks about it with like having this voice behind it. Such a great storm came up. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. There's a leather cushion that the roseman would sit on and Jesus like, move over, I'm taking a nap. Why? Because he was tired. Why? Because he's human. He's a man. And he was exhausted from all of the help and the healing and the hopelessness. He sacked out. But these are seasoned fishermen who know the ways of the waves and they think they're going to die. They cannot keep up with the bailing out. They think this is it. Watch what happens. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? This is a rebuke to Jesus. Maybe you've been there. I certainly have. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, still, just two words, shush, calm. That's what the text says. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. If you've ever been on a storm on the water, when the storm stops, the waves persist. It is ruckus. It is chaos. Not when Jesus goes, shush. It's the same expression he's already cast out a demon with. So you get the impression that this other king has faced him and Jesus goes, shush. Watch what he says. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I've told you that the king 
has come and his kingdom is here. I told you we're going to the other side. Do you know what that means? It means we're going to the other side. Regardless of whatever circumstance, never interpret God in light of your circumstances. If I say we're going to the other side, we're going to the other side. Watch this. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What in the world? He's just told us all these things. What is this? Well, remember, in closing, these guys were from Capernaum. They attended synagogue regularly. We know that from the time they're in there and they see Jesus rebuke the demon-possessed man to heal the withered hand. These guys were from Capernaum. They knew the scriptures and they knew what they just saw meant something massive. Psalm 107, watch this. Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters and they saw the deeds of Yahweh his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord, Yahweh, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his chesed, his loving kindness, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Who is this guy who was so tired he was asleep in a storm, but he stands up and he goes, shush, calm. He is God. The kingdom of God is an open mystery. Will you have this king? How do you hear him? How do you see him? Do you want to understand him? May we have ears to hear. May we have eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this bulky batch of truth. And Father, I do pray this morning, if there's anyone in the hearing of my voice, which is irrelevant, and yet you've given us the honor and the dignity to proclaim your truth, to sow your seed. If there's anyone in the hearing of this word preached that does not know you, would you do for them what you have done for us? Would you do for them what you have done for us? Would you soften the soil of their hearts? We know that your word makes soft hearts softer and hard hearts harder. And so would you, by your sovereign grace, soften hearts to hear, to see, to understand. That they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, that they would be ever thirsty for truth, and that you would always be satisfying. For the rest of us, Father, who perhaps have allowed the soil of our hearts to become shallow or rocky or thorny, would you convict us all over again to seek such that we might see. Would you soften our hearts again and again and again? Would you remind us of this King who has come and the kingdom that is here and the grace of the gospel that invites us into it? We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.